Ephesians chapter 4. Our text tonight will be verse 7 down to verse number 16, uh, but I want to back up to verse number 3 because of an important transition that takes place between verse 6 and 7. Um, this afternoon after we had our service this morning, I went home and uh, ate a really good lunch. The girls fixed breakfast for lunch. How many of you believe that should be written into the tenets of the faith? Uh, hash browns pancakes, eggs, sausage patties, and all God's people said, I'm glad I'm a Gentile, can eat sausage. Anyway, uh, then uh, took a nap and then uh, woke up and uh, sat back down before this passage of scripture. And immediately as I reread it, uh, was just struck, overwhelmed by uh, all that is here and how little of it, and even feeling bad, as I look back, I'm like, I didn't even say anything about that passage. And as an expository preacher, you're supposed to get that and put it all together. And anyway, I was reminded of what C.H. Spurgeon said, and this is a comfort to me. He said, the believer in the Word of God is a little mouse in a great big cheese. He had a Saxon everyday way of saying things, didn't he? The believer in the Word of God is like a little mouse in a great big cheese. Praise God for this book. And what a privilege it is for us to hold our own copy in our language in our lap. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Father, help us as we look at this passage from yet another perspective, like a diamond with unique beauty in every facet of it as we turn just a single passage like this. We think about what Jesus said about a scribe instructed in the word out of his treasury brings forth new things and old things and things that we've never seen before. And that's just a testimony to the infinity of the word of God, the depth of it. And then the old things, things we've heard before and yet the old, old story never really gets old. And so I pray that you'd bless our hearts tonight through your word. I pray that the Spirit of God would be in complete control of this service. Use this message to both build on what we considered this morning and then also to prepare hearts for the week, the weeks, and uh, the next several months ahead. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse number three, the Apostle Paul instructed this church to endeavor make every effort to keep, not make, but keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then, as I understand this passage, verse number 4 through 6 gives really what we could call a sevenfold description of the bond of peace. 
There are a number of commentators that actually believe verse 4, 5, and 6 is a, an early creed, if you would, a statement of faith that believers in New Testament churches would say in order to just indelibly mark their minds and hearts with theology, good theology. Notice this, verse number 4, this bond of peace is made up of the truth of the fact that there is one body. And this is the basis for the unity that Paul is talking about, talking about the church. And uh, let me just say this, uh, this is one church right here. Uh, A church always gets into trouble when it lets little churches develop within a church. And there needs to be a corporate identity, and we have to watch out for cliques, if you would, in a local church. It's just a recipe for division in a local church. There's one body, and of course, I believe there's a greater application here to the body of Christ, but notice this as well. There's one spirit. Listen, there are not multiple Holy Spirits working through each individual believer. There's one spirit working through all of us, moving towards unity. And then notice this, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, this is talking about the future hope, that inheritance, uh, the hope of our salvation, the hope of eternal life, that hope of our calling. And let me just say this, we're all going to the same eternal destination if you know Christ as Savior. So you might as well practice, we might as well practice getting along right now because we will be together for all eternity in heaven. You know, there are a lot of things, and this is just a little side note, there are a lot of things I think when we get to heaven, we're going to look back and, you're, and we're going to say, I can't believe I made such a big deal out of that. I can't believe I let that be an issue between me and a brother. I can't believe I let that get in the way. When we get home, it's amazing how heaven's going to clear up a bunch of clutter from this old world. And so we have this one hope One Lord, talking about our Master, Jesus Christ. Paul talked about that also in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Uh, To his own Master, the individual believer, stands or falls. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the Master. We have one Lord. We have one faith. Can I say it this way? There's one way of getting saved. Okay. It's by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. A rich man gets saved the same way a poor man gets saved. A southerner gets saved the same way a northerner gets saved. A black man gets saved the same way a white man gets saved. And on and on, there's one faith, one baptism. Pretty much every commentator I read agreed that this was a reference to, there were a few exceptions, a reference not to spirit baptism, but to water baptism. And from the perspective of water baptism being our public identification with Jesus Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, Paul warned about uh, people that got into this thing of preachers baptizing a new believer in their name. And Paul even praised the Lord that he had only baptized a limited number of people. Because baptism is not identity with a church per se, a local church. Baptism is ultimately not identity with a preacher. Baptism is public identification with Jesus Christ. Taking a public stand with him, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. I'm often reminded of this when I visited third world countries where people have never had the blessings that we've had as Americans. And yet believers that I meet in the deserts of Africa, in the jungles of South America, or the South Sea Islands, they have the same daddy that I do. 
There's one God and Father of all. Notice this, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so this is a creed that is meant to uh, describe, if you would, the bond of peace, what it is that ties us, the doctrinal truths that tie us all together. But almost as if to, notice how verse number 7 begins, but unto every one of us. Notice Paul goes from this corporate identity and focus on unity to focus on the individual, but unto every one of us. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, even with the importance of unity in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not rub out or ignore the individual needs of every believer. This is good. Jesus is the shepherd of Crossroads Baptist Church, but he is also the individual shepherd of every believer here tonight. The Lord is my shepherd. And so the the beginning of verse number 7 really says that, hey, in the midst of all of this important focus on unity, Paul is saying, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that you matter to Jesus as an individual, and he's got some things he wants to do for you even as an individual in the corporate body of a local church. But unto every one of us is given what? What's the word? Grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Unto every one of us is given grace. I want you to notice as we read the next several verses how many times some form of the word give or gave or given is given. (laughs) And Jesus is the giver. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the, what? Gift of Christ. Follow along. When I stop, you read the next word. Wherefore he saith, when he, speaking of Christ, descended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but it's the idea of cause to abound in the giving that he does. Notice verse number 11. And he, what's the word? Gave. Gave. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Do you notice how many times you saw the word gave, give, gift? And Jesus is the giver. This is in the context of the need of a local church and yet also the need of the individual members within the local church. And just several introductory statements here I want to make about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'm going to uh, really give a a New Testament paradigm from this passage of Scripture of the the kind of pastor, as you think about the future, the kind of... And this has been a challenge to me, a conviction to me, the kind of pastor you should be praying and expecting Jesus to give you. Okay? But I want us to notice several things, first of all, beginning in verse number 7, about the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is this. As we look at the wording of verse number 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The idea is this, is that Jesus knows what this church needs. He knows what this church needs corporately. He knows what you need individually within the body of this church. He knows that. That's the idea when the Apostle Paul said that we've been given grace according to the measure of the the gift of Christ. Uh, It's the idea of Christ's determination that he knows exactly what you need and that's the gift that he's measuring out for you. 
He knows exactly what you need. And so we're given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He knows what you need corporately. He knows what you need personally. But secondly, I want you to notice this. And this gets into a difficult part of this passage of Scripture. I'm going to give you, as best I understand it, what I believe Paul is referring to. It's a passage like this that I'm often grateful for what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, when he talked about things that Paul wrote. He said, in them are things hard to be understood. <laughs> okay, This is one of those passages. Okay. But I want you to notice, secondly, not only does the Lord Jesus Christ, in the measure of the gift that he gives, as he apportions, can I say it that way, apportions or measures out the grace that this church needs, the exact amount of grace, the kind of grace that this church needs and that every individual in this church needs, I want you to notice, secondly, that he is perfectly able to provide abundantly what you need. It's not just that he knows. How many of you have been able to identify a need before, but you didn't have the resources to meet the need? But I want you to know about your shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does he know exactly what you need, but he has the perfect ability to meet that need. And notice what Paul does. He references Psalm 68. Now, we're not going to turn back there tonight. And I believe, he, though he quotes... Uh, a, a version of verse number 18 in Psalm 68. Uh, he is referencing more of the overview of the whole psalm and then making application of Psalm 68 in uh, the work of Christ. Notice, if you would, verse number 8. Wherefore he, speaking of David, Paul is saying, Wherefore David saith, he saith, when he, and now prophetically is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, when he, Christ, ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. In other words, those that had kept others, uh, whether fo uh, forces or individuals that had kept others in bondage, the Lord Jesus put them in bondage. He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, verse number 9, now that he ascended, he's acknowledging, okay, Jesus ascended, talking about back to heaven. What is it but that he also descended? In other words, if he ascended, then by logical conclusion, the implication is that he had to, before he ascended, he had to descend somewhere. Okay. Paul says here, he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. Why? What's the scripture say? That he might fill all things. That he might cause to abound in the meeting of every need. Not just meet the need, but abundantly meet the need. Now, Psalm 68 has been called the victor's psalm. And again, it's a longer psalm, but it has messianic teaching in it. And it's looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, both coming to earth, incarnate, conquering sin, raising from the dead as the Lord of the grave and then ascending back to the right hand of the Father as the victor. And so what, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, hey, you look back at the Old Testament, Psalm 68, and David prophesied, even if he didn't know it, he was prophesying about the work of Christ. He ascended up on high. This is the picture of Christ going back to heaven. Or can we say this? Heavenly Mount Zion as the conqueror. 
But because he ascended, it necessarily implies that he had to first descend. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. Pretty much every commentator that I read and looking at the grammar, and again, there are good men that disagree on this, but they believe that what is being referred to in the passage of Scripture, when Paul talks about his descending into the lower parts of the earth, it's not talking about his going into hell, as some have talked about or thought based on the passage in Peter. But it's describing the work of the incarnation that Jesus Christ came in the lowest form and did battle royale with the devil, with sin and death, and he won. And then victorious, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. So really there are several mountains. And you go back to Psalm 68, the psalmist talks about Mount Sinai, how Moses ascended Mount Sinai and got the law of God that essentially would condemn men, show men that they couldn't save themselves. Because man couldn't save himself, there was another mountain that needed to be ascended. It was Mount Calvary where Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And then raised from the dead on the morning of the third day and then ascended back to heaven and the heavenly Mount Zion victorious. This passage of scripture is also calling to mind a, an ancient tradition. Get this. When a conquering king returned from defeating his foes, from leading captivity captive, when he would return with the spoils of war, he would give abundantly out of the spoils of war to all of those who had been faithful to him. Those who were his loyal subjects. And so Paul, referring back to Psalm 68, and then applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ, is bringing up that whole ancient tradition of a conquering king who when the battle was finished, the foe had been defeated, the spoils of war gathered, he had then he would then come back home, ascend the mountain of his kingdom, if you would, his throne, and then he would hand out abundantly of all the spoils of war. He would give gifts to all of his faithful subjects. What Paul is saying here is this, is that Jesus Christ descended to the lower parts of the earth. He was incarnate. He shed his red royal blood through the substitutionary work of his cross. He paid the penalty for sin. He conquered sin and death and hell and the grave and Satan. And he went back to heaven victorious. And now out of the spoils of war, he is giving gifts to, get this, the local church. Now here's, here, here, here's the point. Listen, I thought about Romans 8.31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us how many things? All things. It's a powerful picture. If he, if he, since he did what he did in being incarnate and coming to the lowest parts of the earth, so to speak, Suffering for your sin and mine is our substitute on the cross. Shedding his blood for the payment of our sin. Letting his body be laid in a grave. Raising victorious. If he did all of that, then you can trust him to give you what you need in a local church context. I don't know about you, but that's securing. That is securing. 
If he did the work of the cross, if he conquered the grave, if he paid the penalty for sin, he can make sure that Crossroads Baptist Church has exactly what they need. And he doesn't just know what this church needs, he has supernatural ability to give this church what it needs. And then that leads us to the end of verse number 10. That he might, why did he do this? Why did he go through the work of the incarnation and his substitutionary death and burial and resurrection and ascension back to the Father after having descended and now making him Lord of both earth and all heavens? Why did he do this? That he might fill all things. That he might cause whatever the need is. Get it? The Lord of this church not only knows what it is, but he has the supernatural, unstoppable ability to meet it. And then that leads us, as we think about his filling all things, meeting all needs. Notice how he does this as it relates to the local church. Now, understand that every individual believer is gifted. And you see that in Romans chapter number 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. The focus of Ephesians chapter 4 is unique and different in that we're not talking about gifts given to believers, but we're talking about gifted men being given to the local church. He, verse number 11, I've been meditating on this a lot this afternoon. And he, speaking of Jesus, the conquering Lord returning from battle with the spoils of war, he, what? Gave. He gave. In the first century, he gave some apostles and some prophets Go back if you would. And this really, I don't want to take but just a moment to look at this. Notice if you would chapter 2. And verse number 19. Now therefore, ye, talking about Gentiles, are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built. And he's talking about the institution of the local church, bringing Jew and Gentile together through the work of Christ. Verse number 20. You are built upon what? The foundation of who? The apostles and prophets. That automatically, referencing the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the local church, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and all the building fitly framed together, growing unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for inhabitation of God. The fact that the, the apostles and the prophets are mentioned as foundation means that their time of operation in the life of the church would be limited. It was part of that first century authenticating the local church and giving initial revelation, New Testament revelation. But those gifts have now fulfilled their purpose. But then there are evangelists. He also gave some evangelists. These are men specifically and specially gifted in bringing the lost to Christ. We have a couple of them gifted by God in our presence this evening. And men like them have operated throughout the life of the church for the last 2,000 years, being specially used by God, a gift to the church. And then notice, he, Jesus, gave out of the spoils of the victory of his work, gave some pastors and teachers. I believe the word pastors and teachers go together, describing or at least overlapping the same ministry. 
One of the reasons for that is that there's a definite article before the word apostles, a definite article before the word prophets, a definite article before the word evangelists, identifying them as unique in their gift. Okay? But then there is only a definite article before the word pastors in the original and not before the word teachers, which according to the rules of Greek grammar ties those two offices or men, if you would, together. What is one of the qualifications given to the pastor in 1 Timothy 3? He must be apt to teach. Pastor, teacher. A gift. Now, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ being the gentle and the good shepherd, the great shepherd, who gave his life for this church and being the chief shepherd of this church, even though this church is about to experience a transition as it relates to an under-shepherd, I want you to know that your chief shepherd is going to give this church exactly who you need. Because he loves you. He loves you so much that he descended in the incarnation and walked for 33 and a half years among the dregs of this world and went to an old rugged cross and paid a debt that none of us in this room could pay. And rose victorious on the morning of the third day and ascended as conquering Lord back to the right hand of the Father. And out of the spoils of that victory, he gives exactly what a church needs. He knows the man you need. You know what you need to be doing? What we all need to be doing? Pray for him. Pray for God's watch care over the process. Pray for him. The Lord already has him in store for you. He's out there somewhere. And I'm saying that with full confidence. Now, that being said, I want us to focus in on the gift of the pastor-teacher to the local church. And just several characteristics, or can I say it this way? Marks that you as a church can look for. And let me say this. These have been a conviction to me to think on. The last 13 years have been some of the greatest treasured years of my life pastoring this church. Though I know we're being moved in the will of God, the direction of God, it still saddens my heart to think about leaving. But I've been convicted, as you think back over the past 13 years on what we've seen God do, but I also look back and I'm, you know, hindsight is 2020. You look back and you think, I wonder how I did there. There's some things only eternity will tell. And I'm so glad that God is gracious. My dad, in 1975, just a couple of months after I was born, started LifeGate Baptist Church that Levi pastors now. He was 21 years old, fresh out of Bible college. And within two years, the church was running between 150 and 200. Bus ministry and a lot of things going on. And my dad, to this day, if you talk to him, you know what he'll say? He'll say, God blessed a lot of foolishness. A lot of youthful ignorance, okay? I was 35 when we started Crossroads Baptist Church, and it's overwhelming for me to think. It's only by the grace of God that we have and see here what we have and see. 
But just as a general overview of this passage of Scripture, and I'll reference a few of the verses, I I want to give you six brief marks of the kind of man. And I'm going to do this briefly because we only have a few minutes left. As you look for, as you pray about a pastor teacher, don't fall into the 1 Corinthians trap. 1 Corinthians 1. I think too many times churches, when it comes to looking for a pastor, it becomes a popularity contest. That's why the recommendation for this church is going to be that you consider one candidate at a time. Not multiple candidates at the same time. Because then it becomes a popularity contest. Okay, And remember this, that very effective preachers have different preaching styles. Okay, One of my favorite preachers is sitting in this room tonight. He's my younger brother. And, and I can say this, no problem, okay? I love to sit and hear him preach, but he is, how do I say this? He's not the most dynamic preacher you've ever listened to. And I'm not saying that as criticism. He doesn't pace back and forth. He doesn't have his tie barely swinging in his chain as he goes, okay? He doesn't get super loud. He doesn't need to. A a liberating truth that he read years ago was stated by Phillips Brooks, a Boston pastor in the mid-1800s, the Civil War era. Phillips Brooks said that preaching is the expression of truth through the personality of a man. And he's understood that God takes his personality. He doesn't have to be anybody else. And so let me encourage you tonight, don't, don't be looking for a pastor based on preaching style. God uses different, and I hope I didn't offend you tonight. Did I offend you? Okay, all right. We're too secure in our friendship for that. But let me say this. First of all, look for a man that models Christ's likeness. Look for a man that models Jesus. That he's striving for that. That he's seeking to live according to verse number two with lowliness. That's a Christ-like quality, and meekness, that's a Christ-like quality, and long-suffering and forbearing one another in love, a man who knows how to love people. I I just want to, and I'm going to be very transparent with you, to me, one of the greatest compliments you could ever pay me is that I'm patient. I'm not like I should be all the time, but when somebody says, Pastor, thank you for being patient, that's Jesus. It's Jesus. Okay. Patience. So pray for a man that models Christ's likeness. Number two, pray for a man that, can I say it this way, that maps a course, that plots a course for you as a church to strive for the same goal. That he's not just interested in Christ's likeness in his own life, but he wants all the rest of you to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Years ago, in a city out in the West, a pastor of a larger church said in my dad's presence that he always kept his people involved in some kind of fight outside the church. fighting this vice or that vice. Or, and, and listen, I'm not against taking a stand on social issues. But you know what he said? 
He said, because if I don't keep them all stirred up in a fight on the outside of the church, they'll be fighting each other on the inside of the church. Can I just say this? There's a major problem with that man's view of what a local church flock is to be like. When you gather together, when we gather together, the primary focus is for us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. In our heart, in our personality, in our focus, loving the things that he loves. And so pray for, seek after a man that models Christ-likeness, that maps a course. And notice what Paul does. Verse number 12, for the perfecting of the saints. The Lord Jesus gave pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come, notice this, in the unity of the faith, looking forward into the future, when all the pieces come together, okay, in glorification, and till we all come together to the knowledge of the Son of God. And this is the Greek word epigenosis that talks about intimate knowledge. Not just cursory knowledge, but knowing Jesus. Knowing Him personally. Not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him personally. Till we all come to the knowledge of the Son of God, and unto a perfect man, a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's the standard and we're all, as Paul said in Philippians, seeking and striving and seeking to attain unto the person of Christ. I want you to be like Jesus. That's the focus. So a man who models Christ's likeness, a man who maps a course for the flock to the same goal. Thirdly, A man who mends, restores, and equips believers for the ministry. Mends and restores. Where do you get that word? Notice, if you would, verse number 12. The Lord Jesus gave these gifted men to the local church. Verse number 12, for the perfecting of the saints. This is interesting. This is the related word to Matthew chapter number 4 when Jesus called the disciples, and they were on the edge of the Sea of Galilee mending their nets. This is the same word also that's used in Galatians 6.1. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. And Paul uses that same word or related word here to describe the work of a pastor. In other words, he is to be a mender. All of us are broken by sin. All of us have damage in our background. All of us are marred. All of us are fallen. And a pastor's job, a pastor's calling is to be God's human instrument in a local church to help mend and restore believers to usefulness. That's the idea of this perfecting the saints, equipping them for the work of the ministry. There's a sense in which a pastor obviously needs to be a peacemaker as well. I think pastors need to be careful about party spirit and allowing that in a local church. The focus needs to be on Christ and Christ alone. Fourthly, Look for, pray for a pastor, not only who models Christ's likeness, not only maps a course for the flock to reach the same goal, not only a pastor, teacher that mends, that restores, 
believers and equips them for ongoing usefulness, but also a pastor that molds people for ministry in the local church. Notice what Paul says. The pastor teacher was given, verse 12, for the perfecting of saints, the saints for the work of the ministry. Can I tell you that that statement there for the work of the ministry is not referring to the pastor teacher, it's referring to the saints. In other words, the pastor teacher is to perfect the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's the divine order here. And so a God-given pastor teacher who is fulfilling his responsibility is going to be molding people, leading people for ministry in the local church. And what is the end goal of that ministry, the motive of that ministry of all believers in the local church for the edifying of the body of Christ? To build up the body, this local church. And so a pastor teacher that a church needs to be praying for, seeking for, is one who models Christ-likeness, maps a course for the flock to the same goal, mends and restores and equips believers for continued usefulness. He molds people for the ministry of the Lord in the local church. Again, that's the word through the dust, if you would, getting dirty to meet the needs of others. But then he also should be a man who motivates those that he leads by legitimate and eternal objectives. You've heard me say this before, and I say it again. We should motivate people by grace, not manipulate them by guilt. As I've thought about, and really this ties together with the final point that I see here of a pastor, he's to make much of Jesus. He's to be pointing people to Jesus, the knowledge of the Son of God, the perfect man, the one whose stature uh, is the goal for all of us till we all come to the fullness of Christ, that we're to grow up into Him. Verse number 15, speaking the truth in love that we may grow up into Him in how many things? All things, which is the head, even Christ. I've thought about this, that when people have a right view of Christ, when people love Jesus, it takes care of everything else. When when people get a big picture of Jesus every time they come to the local church and they're drawn out to love him more, it's going to change the way they live when they walk out the doors of the church. I mean, if you're in love with Jesus, you're going to want to tell people about him. If you're in love with Jesus and saturated with the knowledge of Jesus and wanting to be like Jesus, it's going to change your home. And so a pastor has this wonderful privilege and responsibility to make much of Jesus and to motivate others with these eternal, eternal objectives. I like how verse number 13 begins. How long are we to be doing this in a local church ministry? Till we, how many? Oh, now I am not in favor of our government's no child left behind thing. But I will say this, a local church needs to make sure they do everything they can not to leave everybody behind, anybody behind. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. 
a pastor is a gift to a local church. A gift that is the spoil of war. The conquering work of Christ when he purchased your salvation and mine. And what a privilege it is for a local church to know and to receive a good one. And so let me encourage you, as a local church, walk worthy so you can have God's best. And then pray for the man that God will send you. I know that this may seem awkward for me as the outgoing pastor, 13 years to be saying this, but I'm saying it because I love this church. I love this church. And, and it doesn't bother me at all. And listen, the next pastor that comes in, in the will of God, the plan of God, he comes in and God uses him to do greater works than we've seen in these past 13 years. You know what I'm going to be saying from Missouri or wherever God has me? I'm going to say hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's okay. That's great. Was it Reagan who said years ago, it's amazing how much we can get done if we're not worried about who gets the credit. Let me tell you, the only one that deserves the credit for anything that happens is Jesus Christ. Because he's the one that descended into the lowest parts of the earth. He's the one that grappled with sin and Satan and came out victorious on the other side of the cross. He's the one that went into the depths of a grave and rose of his own power on the morning of the third day victorious over death. He is the one who through his resurrection offers to you and me eternal life and a place in God's family that can never be taken away. He's the only one that deserves the glory. And as part of the spoil of war, he says to Crossroads Baptist Church, I've got a pastor for you. And this is what he'll look like. If you trust me, you follow my direction, this is what he'll be to you. Father, I thank you for the picture all throughout Scripture given of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the shepherd. Thank you for the reminder and song tonight. And Lord, I pray that out of this message this evening, Crossroads Baptist Church would go forward on their knees asking you to give clear direction every step of the way in the coming months that we would have it on our hearts, as many of us already do, to be praying right now for you to prepare the man, work in his heart, whoever he is, wherever he may be, and thank you that in your perfect will and your love for this church that he, this man, as the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to Crossroads Baptist Church is the exact supply for the corporate needs of this church and the individual need of every believer here. And I thank you, Lord, for passages like Ephesians 4 that anchor our hearts to the reality of what we've just prayed. As we conclude this evening, I ask, Lord, that the believers that are here, members of this church and those that faithfully attend, that if there's anything between their soul and the Savior that, that would keep them from being a contributing and a healthy part of this body, I pray that you would put your finger on that now and that they would deal with it.
and be right with you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for all that he is to us. And I ask this in his name.